0: The story is told of some kids in Boston, Massachusetts that were playing in the schoolyard and they found themselves a stray dog. And when they found the stray dog, they gathered together and in considering who would get to keep the stray dog, take it home with them as their new pet, a priest walks along. And this priest sees the commotion of these kids and says, hey, what's going on here? One of the kids looks to the father and says, well, father, we found this stray dog and we're trying to figure out who gets to keep it. So we've come up with a contest. Whoever tells the biggest lie gets to take the dog home. The priest kind of scowls his face and takes a step back and in disgust says to these kids, he says, when I was a youth, I would have never thought of lying to get a dog. The youths stare blankly back at him and talk with one another and say, we agree, you win the dog. And I use that story... To help illustrate what I believe Paul is doing in the book of Romans. Paul illustrating to a number of different people. Their need for the gospel. Paul illustrating in chapter 1 the need of the gospel for the really gross sins out there. And he labels them and he lists them in detail. We'll go over those just briefly. But throughout the first couple of chapters of Romans. Paul continues to talk about the need of everybody For the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I believe Romans is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Draw your attention to verse 1, chapter 1, would you? It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. What's that? Paul is calling himself a bondservant and a servant and all these things, separated to the gospel of God. Now, who's talking here? This is Paul. Paul has never breathed a moment of his life where he was not committed to God. You know that about Paul, don't you? He was always committed to God, full-heartedly. But something changes in his walk, something changes in his demeanor, and now he's not just committed generically to God, but he's actually committed to the gospel of God. What does gospel mean for 400 points? The good news of God. And here in Paul's effort to the Romans, 16 chapters, I believe he is... Writing with his heart and bleeding from his heart, if you would, desiring that these Romans would know what he now knows, what he's come into, which is indeed the good news of Jesus Christ. And he gave his life up for it. He would even call, like I pointed out in verse one, himself to be separated to the gospel. I wish I was more separated to the gospel I'm a pastor, I'm in the ministry and all the rest. But as I consider my own life, I consider how separated am I really? How separated to this gospel? I look at Paul, man, that guy was nuts. That guy was off the hook going everywhere, getting beat up and killed in places, in towns for preaching the gospel. And they would drag him out and then he'd come alive because the Holy Spirit would come upon him and say, let's go back in there and tell him about the gospel. Maybe it was amnesia, I'm not sure. Like, Paul, that's not a good place to go, bud. He was separated to the gospel. And like a jeweler would do, as Mark taught us last week. A jeweler will take his gems, his treasures, and he'll take those treasures and he'll put them on a black velvet background in order that when that light is shined upon there, that fierce light, that the gems and the jewels shine brighter. And I believe in the first couple of chapters, Paul belabors about sin, about the bad news, because the good news can only be really good if the bad news is really bad. And we need to understand, we need to be reminded often that the bad news is really bad. And Paul does that. And it's kind of uncomfortable. And there's some squeamishness. Last week's study touched on some hot topics in our culture and some sins of relevant issues. But it's important that we understand the heart of the message is the good news, not the bad news. But you can't really have one without the other, can you? Have you noticed that? It's really only really good if the counterpart is really bad. And Paul would say, again, in the first chapter, i got to preach this stuff. And he gives three reasons, 16, 17, and 18, in your Bible. First reason, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's the first reason. He said, I've got to tell you about the gospel. Because it is the power of God for everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. And not only that, he would go on to say in verse 17, another reason why I, Paul, am separated to the gospel and will die for the gospel Because not only is it the power of God unto salvation, verse 16, chapter 1, but in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. You ever just meditated on the righteousness of God being revealed? I'm totally into my righteousness being revealed. Hello? Anybody human out there besides me? But the gospel, in a true understanding of the gospel, the good news of God, shows, illustrates, points out God's righteousness. And Paul says, man, that's what I'm all about. I want people to know how good God is. And so in chapter 1 verse 17 he says because the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel that's why and in verse 18 the last reason why Paul says I need to tell you about the gospel I need to stay gospel focused I need to write this letter to the Romans the last reason is because in verse 18 it says the wrath of God is being revealed let's read it exactly for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says this thirdly. I got to preach the gospel. Why? Because things are getting darker, things are getting weirder, and the wrath of God is already being revealed. But there's also a day coming when it's going to be poured out, and that is not a good day. It's not to be taken lightly. And I got to let my light so shine before men that they would know. That there is doom coming. There is indeed a judgment day and everyone's going to go through it. And Paul says, I got the way to get you through. I got the backstage pass. It's called the gospel where the righteousness of God is revealed. And Paul, I'm so fond of his ministry, of his heart. And we can gain a lot. And I believe what he's doing now as he in chapter one laid out that black velvet backdrop. And he listed a bunch of sins there. Cultural sins. Starting with rejecting the creator and worshiping the creation. That was how it all started. They just said, no, no, God. Remember in the Bible, in the Psalms, it says, the fool has said in his heart, no, God, no. And the rejection of God and the acceptance of creation and the worship and how it just goes spiraling down from there and things turned base and things turned low and he listed them, labeling the sins specifically with murder, with deceit, unforgiveness, Sexual immorality. And he went on to say all sexual immorality. And then he specified specifically homosexuality, lesbianism. And he said, this is the downward spiral. This is where it's going. And Pastor Mark taught on that. Go online, download the sermon for free. Check it out if you need to. But that was chapter one. And he used big circles, if you would. Talking about the big gross sins and the stuff out there. The murder, oh, obviously. The maliciousness that is just straight up evil. And he labeled all these sins that most of us could say and agree. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt, man. Those guys need to repent. Uh Uh-huh. And I can see it in my mind's eye. Paul writing to the Romans and some of his religious buddies alongside him saying, yeah, man, guys, can't believe it. And I would say chapter two is kind of like, I'll use this to illustrate what I believe Paul is doing, a group photo. Now imagine in this group photo, take the snapshot. And in this group photo, you have an alcoholic. Not a functioning alcoholic, I'm talking full-blown, can't function anymore. Two different shoes, disheveled, clothes falling off, brown bottle, brown paper bag with the bottle. Just kind of, there's the snapshot, he's there. and It's a sad situation, but you can tell, obviously, this guy has an issue. The guy next to him is a heroin addict. Similar in nature, his teeth falling out, kind of swirying his eyes. You can see the rubber band on his arm still, and his veins are all iced up and all the rest. And you can just tell this guy doesn't have a lot going for him in this group photo. The next guy, Kobe Bryant, just happens to be in the photo here. Kobe Bryant, the shooting guard, number 24 for the Los Angeles Lakers, who will be playing game two tonight against the Boston Celtics. May the best team win. Kobe Bryant there, smiling with his jersey on and his basketball, his golden smile. The next guy in this group photo, let's just throw in Mel Gibson for fun. Director of Passion of the Christ. He actually was a part in that movie. You know what part he played in the movie? He was the guy with the nail and the hammer on Jesus. At least so I've heard. I hope that's true. (laughs) That's what I heard. So Mel Gibson's in this group photo also, so he's there smiling, and we all know Mel Gibson from a distance, don't we? And then just for fun, let's throw a 16-year-old Male adolescent developing youth in there, just kind of, you know, clumsy and growing and there, and all the stuff that goes with this male 16 year old boy. He's in the photo, and just for kicks, I'll jump in the photo too. So here's this crazy group photo. Oh wait, one more person. Let's throw a 70, 75 year old grandma type in there, just kind of smiling. But little do we know, and much to our shock and chagrin, she's kind of a busybody. Okay, let's just let's just be honest. But she's seventy-five, looks real grandma typish, and she's just sitting there smiling pretty. Now, if you take that photo, snapshot from a distance and just frame it eight by ten, full length, you can see everyone there, it's obvious that a couple of these people have some serious issues, is it not? Primarily those first two, the alcoholic and the heroin addict, those guys are sticking out of this picture in a way that is obviously absurdly wrong. They've got some issues. Chapter two, I believe, focuses on kind of those bigger sins. The things that are obvious to mankind and in, in order that you and I who are maybe self-righteous because in chapter 1 he focuses on the obviously unrighteous, he shifts his light a little bit, that spotlight on the obviously sinful person. He shifts that light to the self-righteous individual. And he takes that zoom lens on that same photo, if you would. He takes that same photo and uploads it into Photoshop, which is a program for your computer, and you can see deeper into a photo and what's really going on. But God has something different, a better program than Photoshop. He actually has Soul Shop. He can upload that photo and see everyone there. He sees the alcoholic and the heroin addict, and he sees Kobe Bryant and Mel Gibson and the 16-year-old adolescent and Luke Frechette, that's me, and the grandma type. He sees us all. And he's no, he's very aware of the alcohol and the heroin and the stuff on the left. So then he gets to Kobe. He's also aware of what Kobe's dealing with. The ego that Kobe has. Three rings already at his house wanting a fourth championship ring as he battles for this game. And Kobe being a young man himself. And God can look in, if you would, with his soul shop a little bit deeper than you and I can understand. And he can look into Mel Gibson and I believe this is what God does. He looks deeper within what the obvious things, the outside appearance sees. When he comes to the 16-year-old youth, he sees all the confusion that goes on with being 16 and being a male. Anybody here a male that's been 16? Can we get a hallelujah, help me Lord, whatever. It's tough, it's crazy stuff. And the Lord sees that. Then the Lord gets to Luke forchette. And he sees all the self-idolatry and the self-effort and all the things deeper within. I've I got my Bible. I'm probably, if you would, in that group, besides the grandma type, maybe the holiest looking dude because I got my Bible. <laughs> I could even like turn this foot this way and I have a tattoo of Jesus fish on my ankle. I could get that in the, in the photo there, you know. And, and I would appear on the outside very proper, very refined, very cultured. Very self-righteous. And I believe that's exactly what Paul is trying to illustrate. Take that group photo illustration as an example. As we launch into chapter 2, Paul shifts the light onto the self-righteous individual who would be quick to agree with Paul. In chapter 1, say, yeah, yeah, those guys need to repent, man. That's exactly what they need. And then they're, as they're nodding their head, they look over at Paul, and Paul's pointing at them now. Does that ever happen to you? Happened to me about two months ago. I remember specifically, I was sitting in Starbucks and meeting about five of my good friends. And one of the guys, and we were having some some uh, head-butting conversation there early in the morning, no breakfast, lots of coffee, bad combination, Whew. theology, sheesh, it was going nuts. And one guy felt prompted to start rebuking another man. It was the Holy Spirit, it was awesome. And he says, you got this, and you got this, and you got this, and I sat there with my eyes kind of down, just kind of agreeing, going, yep, he's right. Mm-hmm. Yep, he does need that, you're right. And then he shifted, he pointed at me. And he said, and you, oh man, to Luke Frechette, to me. And he labeled me with the same things. And he was right on, dead on. And I believe that's kind of what Paul's doing here. So if you missed the sin part last week, if you just kind of sailed right through and your sin wasn't addressed, praise the Lord, good job. Chapter two, here we go. The self-righteous judger, the do-gooder, if you would. Let's read it and study it verse by verse. And see how the Lord might apply it to our lives and set us free from taking that place of judgment that is not ours to take. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. The idea there in O man is not a man or the man, it's in mankind. It's a neutral term. And the idea is there anybody, any man or woman, young or old, or grandma types or the rest, anybody... That takes that place of judgment for the purpose of condemnation are inexcusable. Now let me just throw this out there for those of you who are Bible students and desiring to do well in your Christianity. Don't confuse judgment with discernment. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, Jesus said this specifically, judge not lest you be judged. Because the same measure you use to judge others is going to be the same measure used to judge you. That's scary. Scary talk. Jesus says don't judge, it's not smart. Same chapter. Same chapter. 14 verses later and into the 20th verse, Jesus says, here's what you need to do though. You need to beware of false prophets and you need to discern them, if you would, by the fruit on their tree. And you will be able to tell a false prophet based upon the tree or the fruit on their tree. So there is a fine line we walk between judging and discernment. You could even interchange the words as long as you don't go to the place of condemnation. That is the trick for us self-righteous folks gathered here this morning condemnation condemning those people around us using our discernment possibly yes but then veering largely to the left into condemnation found myself doing this yesterday at starbucks sitting on the porch there studying this portion of scripture how cool the lord is when you get convicted in that way and here was what i was doing maybe you guys have done the same i'm listening to let's say five second clips of people walking by me you know what i mean you get five second clips. And then if you desire so, you get a five second visual as well. Get the five second clip and you look over to see who you're discerning and then they're out of your way. And so what you have then gathered is about five seconds of visual, five seconds of audio. And if you're like me, you make the mistake of concluding their whole life. Hello? <laughs> and you know where they're going wrong. You know where they blew it. You know where their sin is. And I, I was doing that all day yesterday until the Lord said, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, oh, just using discernment he said no Luke you're not using discernment and I started listening to the people around me and I was just thinking about their lives and how messed up they are and the Lord said Luke knock it off you have no clue you're taking the place of judgment so easily it's so slippery it's so attractive especially if you're a Christian especially if you've already dealt with your big sins maybe you've already dealt with alcoholism praise the Lord maybe you've pulled out the needle and broken it praise the Lord good job but don't go to that place of judgment. It is so tempting. And Paul must remind us that. Remind the Romans that. You, O oh man, are inexcusable who judge and condemn. For you who judge, practice the same things. By the way, you might say, I don't practice the same things. Can I give you a, a, a verse that will change your life if it hasn't already? James chapter 2, verse 10. Jot it down and check it out later. What James chapter 2, verse 10 says to you and says to me is that all sin is sin. No matter what your sin is, to God, sin is sin. S-I-N-I-S-S-I-N. Sin is sin. Write it down. Memorize it. God doesn't make a distinction or a differentiation between these sins and those sins. Have you done that in your Christianity? Our culture does it. We take this sin, and man, that's a... That one goes over here on the shelf of do not touch, right? And then this sin over here, that one's one we all deal with, and it kind of gets a little bit of leeway here and there. and, And we categorize sin. God does not do that. God says, no, no, I made the law. If you break the law, you offend me. If you break the law by stealing a nickel candy at Seven Eleven, you offend me. If you break the law by being a serial killer, you offend me. I truly believe there is no difference. Now, what that does, how that changes your life and changes my life, is that if you're ever wondering if you're a sinner or in sin, just stop worrying about it. You are. <laughs> just get over it and praise the Lord for redemption. Praise the Lord for forgiveness. And don't be so surprised next time you blow it, Okay? Don't be so surprised next time you stumble into something or repeat that sin again. Sin is sin. And that's the way the Lord looks at it. Let's move on to verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God, the difference between our judgment and God's judgment, the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. I am so excited to believe and to know and to see written here that God's judgment and the way he'll judge everyone, yourself included, in the way that he judges Christians through Jesus, But God's judgment is according to truth. Straight up, he has all the info. He doesn't get five-second clips and five-second audios and visuals. He doesn't get that. He knows all the deals. And that's the kind of judgment he's going to make upon the whole entire world. You need to know that as a believer. Because someone's going to ask you the question one day, what about the aborigine who never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is he going to be judged? You know what I would say? I don't know. But he's going to be judged in truth. God is a fair God. He will do with that man the same thing he will do with that woman and me and everyone else in the scale of truth. He will be fair. And I believe that. Sometimes, though, we want to, again, assume the position of judge, but we don't have all the details, do we? True story of a woman going from one flight to another to catch her connecting flight and on the way stopped into a gift shop and got a magazine and a bag of cookies and made her way to the boarding gate and got on her plane, made her way down the aisle to her seat, sat down in the aisle seat. There was a vacant seat in between her and a man sitting by the window. She throws her magazine and stuff down in the vacant seat, sits down and proceeds to take off, seatbelt on. About half hour into the flight, she's reading her magazine, finds herself a little hungry. So she reaches over on that empty seat and grabs the cookies and opens it up and grabs one, pops it in her mouth. The guy next to her looks at her, reaches over and grabs one too. I think I'll have one of those. She can't believe it. Thinks to herself, what in the world just happened? What do I do? I'm on an airplane. I don't want to get kicked off. I just, I'll let it go. She grabs another cookie, eats it. He grabs another cookie too. There are seven cookies total. So this happens three times each. There's one cookie left. She is beside herself at this point, not knowing what to do. And then the man reaches in and grabs the seventh cookie breaks it in two and gives her a half (laughs) she accepts it wondering what do I do in this situation eats the cookie, thinks it through calms down, it's just cookies, no big deal it's just cookies she reaches into her purse then to grab a Kleenex to clean up the crumbs off of her lap and there at the bottom of her purse is her bag of cookies (laughs) talk about feeling crummy, right? Sometimes we don't, we don't know the whole story. We don't understand all the details, yet we're so quick to judge. She thought they were her cookies, but it wasn't her cookies, it was his cookies. <laughs> I'd like to meet that guy. What a kind individual. Here's a half of my cookie. But we can know, Paul says, and we know that the judgment of God will be in truth. It really will. And I can relax. I can take my my paws off that, that place of judgment and take a back seat and say, Lord, you do it. You know you know better. I don't really know what I'm doing. I am learning in my old age. <laughs> just over 20 if you're counting by tens. So I am, I am learning that I am usually, when I'm vehemently dogmatic about something or I conclude quickly in an issue, I'm learning that I'm usually wrong. I just straight up am. I'm only 30 years old. I'm very young. But I am, I'm so sick and tired of having a con- concrete conclusion. And then some more light is brought in. And I see, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm totally backwards. And I want to start learning to just chill out. (laughs) Just let the Lord be the judge. Hello? How much more fun would it be to let him be the judge? Let him do what he's doing. And I get the part to play that he asked me to play, which is to be the person who extends his love and his kindness. As a matter of fact, let's keep reading about that. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 3. Paul goes on to point at the self-righteous guy and says, man, you're judging these people. You're doing the same thing. That is, you may not be sinning exactly as they are, but you indeed are in sin and taking that place of judgment because a judge ought not to be in sin like our Savior has the right to do. You don't. I don't. And he says, you, you think you can just keep getting away with your stuff. Or you're going to escape the judgment of God. Reminds me of a story. You Bible students will remember it well. Second Samuel chapter 12 where Nathan, the prophet, shows up to King David, and he says, David, there's a man in this kingdom, your kingdom, and this man's rich. And what he did is he found a poor man with one lamb, this poor man and this lamb, this homeless guy, and this rich man stole his lamb and cooked it and ate it. And David says this to Nathan, he did what? This rich man with many lambs stole this one man's lamb and cooked it and ate it. David says this then, that rich man needs to repay that poor man fourfold now check it out in the old testament that was true you're supposed to pay it fourfold back david then kind of flies off the handle in this story nathan tells him second samuel 12 write it down david says and after he's paid him back times four kill him kill that rich man and nathan strokes his beard and says david you're the man you're the rich man you know, who know the story, David had sin in his own heart. He was judging this rich man, if you would, vehemently going over the law, over and beyond, saying, man, we've got to kill this guy. Totally flying off the handle. And I believe his judgment was so adamant, so vehement, because within David's own heart, he had unconfessed, unrepented sin he was dealing with. Here's a little test for you. If you find yourself getting irritated easily, Getting angered quickly, going over the top often. There's a chance, a general rule, that deep within your own heart, something's still there. Something's festering. You who know David know well that about a year earlier, David slept with another man's wife, got her pregnant. Realizing that pregnancy, he then had her husband killed and was now attempting to father that child as if nothing had happened. And God says, no, no, something has happened. And it needs to be dealt with through repentance. And David would indeed repent. And that child would indeed die. But God would then bless David through repentance, through openness. And Solomon would be born just a short time later. But in verse 3 again, he says, you guys, you judge and you think you're going to escape. You're not going to escape. You think you've gotten away with it and you start judging other people. Just a little rule to think about. Verse 4, moving right along. Or do you, talking to the righteous now, the self-righteous... Despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Interesting way of wording this. Interesting light he brings to what the self-righteous person is liable to do. Have you noticed as a Christian, as a believer in God, one who has face time with the Lord, maybe some Bible time, some prayer time, some devotions. You're a Christian. Have you noticed how tempting it is to judge other people? To just kind of size them up on a wrong comparison scale, but to yourself. And to kind of want even, as you notice the people around you sinning and in error. Have you ever been tempted? Don't raise your hand. It's embarrassing. Have you ever been tempted though to just say, Lord, just deal with them, man. Bring out the big thumb and squash them. You who are laughing, you know. (laughs) I've been tempted to say that prayer. Here's the deal. I want to tell you something. You need to wrestle with this this week if you disagree with me. The only one who's qualified to do the judgment on the earth is God himself. But can I say something? I believe God is taking that responsibility because he's God. But I believe he doesn't want to do it. I believe it's not going to be a fun act for him. I really believe with the Father's heart he's going to do it because judgment must happen. But I personally believe, and we need to understand as his kids, God is not a God who is looking and has a backpack full of lightning bolts looking for people to strike down. You get that connotation sometimes by looking at his kids? Let's go sniff out some sin. Let's go deal with the sinners. Let's go find them. Let's bomb that clinic. Let's protest that deal. Let's go here. Let's mess that thing up. Let's let's riot. And I believe, I really do believe, God's heart, as it says here in verse 4, that the kindness of God... The goodness of God leads people to repentance. God one day, when it is all full to the brim, have to say and have to do it and say, it's time to go to the woodshed, earth. It's time to go to the woodshed, man. And it's a sad day. It's not a day to look forward to. And you need to understand something about God. I really believe it's true. He's not looking forward to that day either. Nor should we. It's not characteristic of God to want to judge people. To want to see Sinners, stamped out Sin, snuffed out, yes Sinners, stamped out, no Make the difference, understand that He says though to self-righteous people Do you despise the riches of the goodness Forbearance and long-suffering of God I just want to talk to you quickly about the goodness Forbearance and long-suffering of God And how you, and how me, how I Can despise it I don't want to despise anything that God says is rich or good Number one Do you despise the riches of his goodness? Circle that word in your Bible. Jot it down. Think it through later. The goodness of God. How easy it is to despise the goodness of God. Again, referring to David in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, the 6th chapter. Write it down. And in 2 Samuel 6, David is experiencing the goodness of God. Remember that? He's bringing the ark back to the temple. It's a good day. It's a great day. And David is so pumped on God, in the goodness of God, that he strips down to his jeans and his t-shirt. He takes his kingly robe off and puts his t-shirt on, his linen, his cloak. He's not naked by any means. He takes his kingly garments off though and he starts to enjoy the Lord, whirling about dancing, kind of like a lunatic, really. But he's enjoying the goodness of God. What happens during that story? Michael, up in the window, his wife, looks down at her husband and despises him. And judges him because he's so set free and set free indeed and enjoying the goodness of God. And her and her own self-righteousness can't handle it. It gets under her skin. Have you ever seen somebody worshiping freely? Praying intently? Serving diligently? Giving freely? Loving the Lord, enjoying His goodness? And it just gets under your skin? Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird how it makes you unsettled when you see somebody freer than you and you just kind of despise the goodness of God? Beware of that. Because, by the way, Michael, for those of you who know the story, the rest of her days was barren. She did not bear fruit. She did not produce life. She had nothing to offer. And if you and I judge those who are freely enjoying the goodness of God, if we fall into that temptation in our self-righteousness and get mad at folks who are enjoying God, you too will be fruitless. You'll have no life, nothing to give, like Michael. Secondly despising the riches of his goodness but also despising the riches of his forbearance forbearance literally means to understand the law and how it needs to be penalized out and then to retract that penalty from the person that's forbearance they they, they deserve this they deserve this fine they deserve this sentence but forbearance says i'm actually going i know that but i'm actually going to do something totally different the riches of god's forbearance Reminds me of Jonah. Jonah, what a fun little book we tend to read maybe once a year. Jonah, when you go through it in your daily Bible thing. (laughs) Jonah. Jonah here did not want to go to the children of Nineveh and preach the gospel of repentance. Why not? Does anyone know? It's not that he hated them. Because he knew they were going to get saved. And he hated them. (laughs) He hated them and he didn't want them to get saved. But he knew that God was going to be forbearant. With them. He knew it. And he hated him. And he didn't want him saved. And so he ran off to Tarshish. And you know the story. But I would like to read to you. Out of Jonah chapter 4. Jonah's response. I'll actually start with the last verse of chapter 3. And you can jot it down. Check it out later. This is the end of the revival. Listen to this. Then God saw their works. That they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster. That he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. End of chapter 3. Revival. 150,000 people saved. Amazing grace. Wow. Celebration time. Chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, ah, Lord, that's what it says. It's funny. A-H, Lord. Ah, Lord. Ah, Lord. Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Talk about a brain-dead response to a revival. Despising the forbearance of the Lord. Beware, though, self-righteous person, as God moves upon those family members of yours, the people that are out there, living like the people of Nineveh. As God starts to do revival out there in Florida, and you think to yourself, it ain't gonna last. That's not great. That's not real. It's not working. Or whatever happens in your life is your parents repent to you as a child maybe and say, hey, I'm a Christian now. Will you accept my love? And a child can find themselves saying, you know, I don't really trust you. Don't despise the riches of God's forbearance in what he does to the community and to the people around you. Be careful. Rejoice when sinners repent. What the angels do, by the way. Angels are having a great time. Also, lastly, a danger that you and I have, despising the riches of his goodness Judging those who are dancing, despising the riches of his forbearance, getting mad when God saves those who are really, really bad people, or despising his long suffering. Long suffering, his patience. And I want to put this back on you and on me. And this is how it looks for you and for me. Here's how we are going to despise the riches of his long suffering. Have you ever sinned willingly? And when you sinned, there was that rush, there was that battle, there was that defeat, there was that issue, and you went in, and it happened, and you went out, whatever it is, maybe the internet, maybe stealing, maybe taking stuff from the office, whatever is speeding, vandalism, whatever it is, and then you pull out, and you wait for it all to fall apart. You wait for the roof to come down. Anybody ever done that but me? <laughs> and you just kind of dabbled with some sin, you're wondering what's going to happen now. And lo and behold, nothing does. And then the next time you visit that same sin or a similar sin, you find yourself slipping in a little easier. And it's still a rush and it's still ecstasy and crazy and wow. And you back out and then you wait for it all fall down. Nothing happens. Here's the mistake that you and I can make as we despise the forbearance or should I say the long suffering of God. From time to time, we'll find ourselves committing habitual sins or just kind of characteristical sins and nothing happens. And then you consider this wrongly and you say, well, I know what the Bible says, but I must just have one of those special deals going on. God must just see me as maybe just his special guy, you know, and he's kind of got that wink and he says, oh, Luke, you, you crazy kid and whatever, (laughs) however you want to justify it because it doesn't fall down on you like it ought to have. The wages of sin is death, but man, hey, this is kind of cool. I'm kind of building my empire here. I'm kind of building my bank account, this little side account over here with the company's funds or I'm kind of working this scheme over here, uh, gossiping here. I know gossip's bad, but man, it sure is fun and it's not hurting anybody. It's not really hurting anybody, is it? Ananias and Sapphira come to mind. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, sold their property and then they told each other. They lied to each other. said, let's tell... The prophets, let's tell Peter and Paul, let's tell these guys that, that we sold it for this amount. And so they lied to each other. Guess what happened? Nothing. Okay, cool. Passed that first roadblock. Didn't come down on us. Then they go and they give the money and they're asked then, okay, what's, what, what's this money for? And they said, well, we sold our house and everything and it was worth this much and so we're given exactly what it was. No big deal. The, the, the prophets and the apostles didn't even ask for all of everyone's money but they had lied about it trying to imply this is everything we got. Nothing happened, even at that moment. Then the Lord revealed to Peter what had been going on. And Ananias, the wife, or Sapphira, or Ananias, the husband, comes in. And he asks him, how much did you sell your house for? He says, such and such an amount. He goes, why are you lying? It was your house to do with whatever. You didn't even have to sell your house, man. Why are you lying about it now? You lied to the Lord and he dropped dead right there. His wife would come in about 30 minutes later, three hours later actually, and she would go through the same process dying as well. And it all came down on them. We can make the mistake, Christian. You need to do some soul searching and thinking through today by despising the long suffering of our God. I know all too well the destruction of, and the explosion that is awaiting you, if that's what you're doing right now. I know it all too well. I've done it. little slip in here, a little slide in there. Not, not so bad. Not so bad. And you keep moving further in, and it is a matter of time. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. It happens, it will happen. So today, if there needs to be an adjustment, righteous person, self righteous person, if you need to adjust and repent, we're going to have a time for that in just a few moments where you can say, I'm done. I don't want it to come falling down on I me. Mean, reminds me of a story in the 1880s. A banker working for Wells Fargo figured out a way, a high-up banker, figured out a way to take a single silver dollar home every single day he worked. He would jiggle the books a little, arrange things to look this way or that, and he would take just a single dollar home and he would place it, store it, up in his attic for retirement. And he did this day in and day out for 20 years. One night he throws up a coin, Puts himself to bed not knowing that the beams in his roof were rotting slowly over the years. And that night would be his last night because the weight of that sin finally crumbled down and crushed him to death. Same is true with you, me. Again, I speak from experience. And the pain still floods back to my memory when I consider how my world has fallen apart a number of times because of my secret stuff. Because I was despising the long-suffering of our God. Don't do it. Repent today. It's going to be a fun day. If you repent, go out to lunch and have a great time. Tell me the truth. Let's read a couple more verses here. Actually, let's just extract a little bit more out of verse 4. How I introed into verse 4. Or do you not know that the kindness of God leads people to repentance. I just want to put that out. I already talked about it, probably taught it through thoroughly enough. Don't need to go there again, but I'm gonna. It is the kindness of God that brings people to Him, it is not the judgment of God. Judgment of God's gonna happen by God, not you. I would implore you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, to pursue kindness, to really pursue it. I am so prone to be critical and judgmental. I I mean, it's it's second nature. I hate it. Thanks, Dad. I'm just kidding. (laughs) My dad, yeah. I love you, Dad. It's second nature for me to be critical. I remember specifically, here's a funny story. Pulling off the freeway, you got one of those guys on the side panhandling with the sign. And the sign said something along the lines of, uh, Why lie? I just want some weed. Okay? That's what it's... You know? You've seen it. You've seen the sign. So I'm with Jesse Banks. Is Jesse Banks here? Jesse Banks just has a kind spirit about him. I don't think he's here this morning. One of my good friends. He's driving the vehicle and I'm on the right. And we're pulling up and I see the guy. Why lie? I just want some weed. and He's got a big smile on his face. Now I used to be a drug dealer. got out of jail in 1998. I know the whole deal, but I don't approve of it. So here's what I do. I see him. I'm in the passenger. Jesse's over here. And I see this guy and I just look at him. And I kind of squint my eyebrows a little bit and just shake my head disapprovingly. No way, man. Not cool. Now, I look over to my left and see Jesse. And Jesse, in a non-condoning way, mind you, is just smiling at the guy. Waves. And I look at Jesse. He's smiling, loving this guy. And I tell Jesse, I say, I just scowled at that guy. And Jesse goes like this, You did? And I said, No, I'm just kidding. I didn't scowl at <laughs> My temptation is to be critical. Jesse, on the other hand, had this proclivity to being kind. And I would just say, I would just think it through. If you're like me at all, God, help you (laughs) not to judge people, not to consider that you know so much of the story, but it's the kindness of the Lord that leads people to repentance. And I pray that God would give us more kindness, which is, by the way, a fruit of the Spirit. Praise the Lord. Keep going with me. Chapter 2, verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. This idea of storing up treasure, storing up or treasuring up wrath is the same illustration I used for the banker in the 1880s. You're just treasuring the stuff up. It's kind of like a water balloon. You ever been in your house and put a water balloon, one of those big ones, on your sink and you fill it with water and it fills up right away and then pretty soon it just starts slowly getting bigger and it's real bright and pretty and getting bigger and bigger. Man, this is nuts. Well, one day, boom! It's going to come down. It will happen. It's going to explode. Beware. Be careful. Because God is going to judge everyone according to their deeds. Read with me the next couple of verses. Here's how he's going to judge people. Verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, they're going to get indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, if you're not careful and don't know the Bible, you would consider from that portion I just read that Paul is lobbying for works-based salvation. Let me just talk about works-based salvation quickly. Hopefully, we are a congregation here who knows that the only way one is saved is not by works, but by faith, by grace. Now, that faith and grace will yield Good works. That's the format. That's how it flows. But it's not good works that gets me in. But I would be adventurous enough to state, I actually don't think that's true. If you live a perfect life, if you do good, as he just listed, with patient continuance, if you never fail, if you run well your whole life, you actually can and will get into heaven apart from faith and grace. The only problem is, No one can do it. Not one person in this group or one person ever to have lived on this earth besides the one. And it's from his blood, from Emmanuel's veins, that he shed. The one who lived the spotless life, the life you could never live, died the death you should have died, and then raised from the dead victorious, inviting you to come with him. Only one person has made it in that way. God's going to judge everyone according to their deeds. Good luck with that one, right? (laughs) And that's why a group like this says, it is Jesus. And Paul will conclude that later on in the middle of this book. Saying, who can save me then? Who can save me? It's Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And he's talking to the do-gooders, to the self-righteous person. And I hope there's a couple do-gooders here this morning. A couple of self-righteous people who maybe right now you're concluding in your heart, maybe the Lord is touching you, you're saying, you know what? I I thought it was about me getting better, me getting brighter, me cleaning up my act, me being in that photo, not the alcoholic or the heroin addict, but cleaning myself up. I thought that's what it was all about. That's not what it's all about. You will not get into heaven that way. But you can get in through the blood and through the invitation of Jesus Christ. The invitation will be put out in just a few minutes. Let's read those other verses. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. That's a cool verse. That's one to memorize, by the way. Romans 2.11. There's no partiality with God. No one's getting into heaven based on the color of their skin. No one's getting into heaven based on the number of zeros after the number of their salary. No one's getting into heaven based on the amount of sins and or good works you've done. I had a conversation with some missionaries down in the park on Monday. When I say missionaries, I mean the white shirt and tie missionaries on the bikes. And I helped them to understand that most of the world and most false religions believe that you're going to get into heaven, the afterlife, the better place, based on if your good works outweigh your bad works. And that's exactly what they believe. And I said, it couldn't be anything further from the truth. You just can't do it. It doesn't work that way. God is not a respecter of persons. That's not how we get in. He doesn't judge us based on who we are. He judges us based on who Jesus is to us. Jesus has offered himself to everyone that we would wear his robe, if you would, that borrowed robe of glory, of perfection. And God would then look upon you and look upon me and say, That's a robe bearer, that's a Christian, a little Christ. That's one who's had the blood applied to the doorpost of their mind, of their heart, of their soul. Let them in. Oh, I see the sin. I see the need. But it's been covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's how judgment gets poured out. And that's when judgment will get poured out. Verse 12, Paul says, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. What Paul is saying here is that there is a group of people, you're probably in that group, That are going to be judged according to the law. Why? It's because you have it. You now know what to do because you've been instructed. And there was a group then who would fall into that same category. But Paul would say, you know what? There's a whole other group out there that doesn't have the law. They don't have the Old Testament as Paul did, as the Romans did in that time. But what they did have, this is important for you to know. What they did have, Paul says, is they had the law of God written on their hearts. That is their conscience telling them what is right and what is wrong and without the law let's say you don't have it I believe every human being has the law of God written upon their hearts and they know what is right and wrong and guess what they do they do innately wrong it's just the way it is I have a six month old son who's the most beautiful bucket of joy in the whole world but I know theologically I know specifically, spiritually, that he's an unrepentant sinner even now. He's so cute. But I know for a fact that he innately is going to be rebellious, he's going to do wrong, and he's in need of a Savior named Jesus Christ. He hasn't had the law yet, but written on the heart of his conscience is the fact of the matter, I'm not God. And there is one, and he will judge. Now there is a a mantra being repeated throughout the globe that says, ah, there is no God. There is no judgment. And that mantra is being heard and repeated and heard and repeated, but innately, innately, as a child, we know right from wrong. We know it. And then our conscience is seared. It doesn't work properly. And sin and its downward spiral takes us further and further away from the Lord. You need to know this as New Testament believers in the year 2008. How important it is when you engage your coworkers. That at one point, and they may have bought into that mantra at this point, but at one point they knew, and I believe their knower still knows, there's a right and there is a wrong. There's a God and I'm not him. And there's a judgment day and I need help. I believe it. I really do believe it's true. And Paul would say that, I believe, in this portion I just read. And as a Christian, you engage your family members. You engage the missionaries downtown. You do what you do. You must know. That they know they need help. You got the ticket. You got the answer. Last verse for the day. Verse 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. I already put out many thoughts about the judgment day and how that's possibly going to look and the fact that it is going to happen. And I want to kind of end on that sober, somber reality. Paul emphatically says, hey, there is going to be a day when all the secrets of men are revealed. When all the purses are open and there's the cookies at the bottom. When all the photos are brought up onto the desktop and looked at through soul shop, not just Photoshop." And God shows us what's really going on with Kobe Bryant and Luke Furchette and Mel Gibson and 75 year old grandma type. All the secrets are going to be revealed minus those who have had those secrets covered by the blood of the lamb. Because what's it say there in verse 16? In that day, when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. How's he going to judge everyone? According to the good news. So what about those who rejected the good news? Tried to do it on their own. Tried to get in through their own good achievements. The do-gooders. The self-righteous. What about them? Well, they're going to be judged on the gospel too. Did you accept my son? Did you accept the payment? Did you get your backstage pass? Did you get your robe fitted? And there's going to be a great cry that day. Two simple truths to wrap up to think through, because there's probably two groups of people here, the self-righteous, saved, and then the unrighteous do-gooders who are here this morning. So I want to speak this to my brothers and to my sisters. Here's the action step number one. What can you get from today's message? How can you apply this to your own life as we sing a song, do some baptisms in just a minute, if that's you, get ready? How can you apply this to your life as you get ready to go down to the Greenleaf restaurant and get some food with your family or however it looks to you? The temptation for you and I as Christians Is to judge people Let me just say this It's not your job Let God do it You don't have all the info You won't do a good job You'll end up hurting people You could sum all that up if you want to In four words Don't be a jerk (laughs) Okay Action step number one Don't be a jerk the reason I say that is because that's usually what I am. It's true. I'm a judge. Even in my heart, even if I smile real big at this person, I'm judging through my teeth. And God says, Luke, you know what? You know what would be so fun, Luke? You know it would be so fun? It's to understand that the kindness of God leads people to repentance. It's being kind, Luke. That's so much more fun. Try it. Be kind to people. Action step number one, don't be a jerk. Action step number two. For those of you who have not yet concluded, the only way in is through Him. You can't clean up enough. You can't go into the soul shop program yourself and fudge the picture of yourself and convince God that it looks good. He knows. He actually zooms in so deep to your soul that He sees that it's sick. There's an illness in there. It's tainted. You can't get in. And so for the person who today needs to conclude, I want in, I want in, Four words for you. Believe in Jesus today. Believe in Jesus today. Would you all stand with me as we pray? i have the worship team come on back up right now. How much more fun To be a Christian who is contagiously kind to the community around you. Do you you even have a role model in your life that you can think of who's just kind? Who's a Christian who knows, who's solid with the Lord and preaching the gospel? I have a couple people that I like to be around because they're just so kind. Now I have a whole bunch of people around that aren't that kind. I'm one of them. But I have a couple people that I aspire to be like. Because they're just so full of love and joy. And the Bible says... That it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. So if you're a Christian here today and you want to commit to being kind under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit. And in committing to doing so, you're also admitting that you haven't been. Can I just ask you to humbly say, I have been a jerk. I have been judging people. I am quick to slam, quick to, to slay people in my heart. I don't want to do it. Would you just slip your hand up in the air and leave it up there real quick? Lord, see our hands, Lord. Help us not to judge. Help us, Lord, to not be a jerk. (laughs) You can put your hands down. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And maybe you're here. Maybe you've been to this church for years. Maybe you're just visiting today. Maybe this is your first time. If you're here today and you haven't yet accepted that the way into heaven, the way out of this judgment of the secrets of your heart, your secrets won't be revealed because they're covered in blood. Praise the Lord. The Bible says in Philippians that the handwriting of requirements against you spiritually has been nailed to the cross if you're in Jesus. And if you want to make sure or commit today and do that four-letter, four-word phrase, believe in Jesus today, would you raise your hand right now and leave it up high? Praise the Lord. Two brothers up here. Came on my left. Praise the Lord.